0: Our Bible reading from today is from Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to el and all that belonged to Kilion and Marlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance And be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram. Ran fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So let me start this
1: morning, as per usual, with a question. All things considered, if you had the choice, how would you like your life to be summed up? Maybe in a sentence or two, in a paragraph? Let's say you make it 80, 90 years, pass away peacefully in your sleep, surrounded by your family. How would you like your life to be described? What would you want your legacy to be? Well, the Australian Red Cross has a simple solution. Give them money in your will. If you want your memory to live on, if you want to be remembered, all you need to do is make a legacy donation. And I can make this link available at the end of the gathering if you'd like to. I'm joking. I, I don't know a whole lot about the Red Cross. I don't have anything against them. But as Christians, is this really how we think that we can make a difference with our lives? How we can leave a lasting legacy? Well, the book of Ruth this morning, I would submit, gives us a different answer. Our main characters were as... Jahan mentioned this morning, we're still reading thousands of years later, and as far as I'm aware, they didn't give any money to the Red Cross in their will. So as we look this morning at, at our stunning conclusion to the book of Ruth, we've got four main points as we work through the narrative, if you're taking notes. The Redeemer who wouldn't, the Redeemer who would, the God who's God over our circumstances, and the God who is God over history. But before we jump in to our first point, uh, why don't we just pray together? Gracious God, we thank you that you have preserved your word for us in Scripture. God, we thank you that you are sovereign over all, that you are at work in these characters as we look at their lives retrospectively thousands of years on. God, we pray that your spirit that inspired the scriptures writing would illuminate it to us this morning. And God, would your spirit empower the preaching of your word, that it might be effective in our hearts, that they would burn for you, that we would see you more clearly, we would see our sin, we would see our goodness, and God, that you would be glorified in us this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So a couple weeks ago, doing sermons a little bit closer this time around, we did chapter three. And if you remember, Naomi suggested for for Ruth to go and approach Boaz in the middle of the night, albeit, and Ruth asked Boaz, essentially, will you marry me? Will you redeem me? And Boaz gave what I would say was a, a soft yes, an in principle yes, but there was a caveat. Remember, he said, there's a redeemer who is closer than I. But if he doesn't, I will. So we left chapter 3 having hope. There was, there was security for Ruth and Naomi. Regardless of what was going to happen, it was going to work out. But there was, still, there was still a little bit of details to be worked out. Boaz finished the narrative by saying, I'll go sort this out straight away. And then Naomi reaffirmed that and said, I know enough about this guy that he's going to sort it out straight away. And so that's where we pick up at the beginning of chapter 3. Boaz has gone down to the gate... And he is sorting it out. So that's our first point. The Redeemer, who wouldn't? Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So, first couple of verses, we're introduced to our first character, who I'm going to be referring to throughout the rest of this sermon, as Mr. So-and-so, the relative of Naomi and Boaz. Now, why am I calling him Mr. So-and-so? Well, because I have a degree in Hebrew, and the Hebrew... No, I don't have a degree in Hebrew. I have a software called Logos, and the actual word that is in this sentence where Boaz says, turn aside friend is, and I will butcher this pronunciation, I promise you, Poloni Almoni, which, Braden's giving me the, well, close enough. You weren't there, you don't know how it was pronounced. <laughs> which is roughly such and such, or so and so. Here, in the NT, we might have something that would be similarly, hey champ, hey old mate. And this, the author doesn't want us to interpret this positively, as in, Hey, friend, come over. We're intentionally meant to be reading this pejoratively. We're not getting this guy's name in the book intentionally because the author doesn't think this guy is worthy to have his name recorded. This redeemer who chose not to redeem, who wouldn't redeem, we don't know his name. It was snuffed out to history. And this is actually pretty ironic as we'll see as we read on. Straight away, we should see the juxtaposition here between Boaz, who his first introduction at the beginning of chapter 2 is there was a worthy man to name Boaz. What we're reading here is there was an unworthy man whose name we don't even want to know. And Boaz assembles this crowd of witnesses when he sits down with Mr. So-and-so and he says to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of all those who are sitting here. If you redeem it, please redeem it. If you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And Mr. So-and-so says, I will redeem it. So far, so good. He's willing to help this poor old widow by purchasing her property for her. But Boaz goes on, hold on, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, or I cannot redeem it. As soon as Mr. So-and-so, old mate, hears about Ruth, He's out. I cannot, he says. Which he could a second ago. So I think we should interpret that as I don't want to. He knows this is actually going to cost him something. And there's a chance, now that Ruth's in the equation, that he might not get anything out of it. Now, we don't. We're, a thousand, couple thousand years removed from the whole idea of redemption and purchasing a property for someone out of redemption and perpetuating the name of the, of the dead. Uh, and the new Bible commentary explains it way better than I can, so I'm just going to read a paragraph from that. Elimelech had the right to an heir. Ruth, the Moabite's, his daughter-in-law, was still living. And the man who brought the field had the duty of raising an heir for the dead man through her. If a son were to be born the land would revert back to him, that's Elimelech's line, and Elimelech's property would remain in the family. The kinsman would then lose what he would have bought and would also have another family to keep. Hence the reply from Mr. So-and-so that I cannot do it. The cost for him was too high. Now let me ask you, how often do we do a similar thing? How often is our default a, a willingness to help, do something altruistic, you know, be benevolent, if there's something we can get out of it? We'll happily support a nonprofit as long as it's tax-deductible. We'll serve a good cause, as long as everyone knows we're serving the good cause and we're seen and we're recognized. We'll go on a missions trip, make sure we get plenty of selfies, post all over Facebook. We'll be generous to those people that we know Might give us back some other way. And this is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus goes after with the Pharisees, does he not? We heard about this several weeks ago in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. I also think there's a little bit of sneakiness at play here in Mr. So and so, our would be redeemer. When Naomi came back from Moab in chapter 1, whole town caused a stir. Everyone's like, is this Naomi? What happened to her family? And Naomi says, you know, I have no one. And Ruth's standing right there. But has he been living under a rock? With all the commotion that Naomi caused when she, when she came back in this small town, surely he would have remembered her, right? And even if it had been six months or something since he came back, when, Ruth's, uh, when Boaz specifically mentions Ruth the Moabite, that should, that, things should start clicking in this, in this would-be redeemer's head. But I think there's a chance that because Boaz didn't initially mention her in the sales pitch, that he thought he might be able to get away with just purchasing the land. Let's forget about this foreigner. We don't need to remember her. And Mr. So-and-so can add to his little empire. Have you ever had that thing where you go to, uh, not usually a big chain store, but a small shop, and the teenager behind the counter has no idea what they're doing, and just kind of deadpanning, and misses a few items. Or is like, how much does this cost? It was on sale for a dollar. And you're hoping that you can get away with the the, uh, ineptness, I guess. I don't want to be mean to this hypothetical teenager. But you're thinking, if they don't say anything, I could get away with this sweet discount. Surely Mr. So-and-so would be thinking, all right, property for redemption, no heir. She's getting pretty old. I might be able to get a pretty sweet deal out of this. And the whole system of land ownership in Old Testament Israel, I certainly don't know heaps about it, but it's very different to us. Well, it was meant to be different. Than what it is for us. Israelites, they were given land when they went into the land of Canaan, and that was meant to stay in the family. And so, if you had to sell your land because of poverty, when the Jubilee year came around, that was meant to revert back to that family, unless there was no family to revert that back to. So, this heir's thinking, this Mr. So and so's thinking, no heir, no family, I can buy this, I get to hold on to this for life. This is great. Build up my empire, build up my inheritance. And this is, as I mentioned before, this whole thing is pretty ironic because Mr. So-and-so didn't want to perpetuate this name of the dead on the off chance that his name, his inheritance, might be diluted. And yet, history forgets this man. No record of it. He wanted to focus on building his own kingdom instead of God's kingdom. He was storing up his own worldly treasures instead of heavenly treasures. Mr. So-and-so was fixed on the things of this world, not the things of eternity. And look where that got him. I was trying to think of like a a catchy phrase that I could keep coming back to throughout the sermon, but the best thing I had was worldly economics, which isn't like super catchy or great to come back to, but I'm going to keep using it anyway. If you think of anything better, tell me afterwards. (laughs) But Mr. So-and-so was using... Worldly economics. And in so doing, he misses out completely on what God is doing. From from a worldly economic sense, does it make sense to buy property that you then have to give away, or likely give away? Not really. In God's economics? That doesn't sound very good. In God's economy, in the system we have of a worldview with Yahweh is God and creator and Sustainer of all things, that makes a bit more sense. Mr. So-and-so isn't the first person in the book to do this. If you remember the tale of Ruth? I hope you remember. It's kind of foundation for the story. Ruth and Orpha, when they were coming back from Moab, Naomi said, go back. I can't give you a husband. I don't have kids. Go back to Moab. That's where you'll find contentment. In your gods, in your family, your chances are way better there. From a worldly economics. In that system of thinking, it makes sense for Orpha to go back, right? Naomi's old. She's not going to get married. She's not going to have an heir. She's not going to have any kids. There's not a, there's not a whole lot of prospects for her going back to, to Bethlehem. So she goes back and again, goes back to Moab, and history forgets. Ruth puts all her eggs in the Yahweh basket, puts the worldly economics aside, and says, No, no, I trust Yahweh. I'm going to follow him. He will be my God. Your people will be my people. And wasn't that absolutely worth it for Ruth? What an opportunity that for missed out on, and what Mr. So-and-so, our redeemer who, would, who wouldn't, who would is also missing out of. A side note that I thought was interesting as well, if, if Ruth wasn't in the equation in this deal that Boaz is pitching to Mr. So-and-so, he likely would have gone ahead with the transaction. And if that was recorded on a piece of paper, we'd go, yeah, good guy, redeeming property. But his heart was not in that. He wasn't wasn't doing it out of a motivation to follow God's laws and his statue. He wasn't doing it out of a love for Naomi and her family. He was just selfishly motivated. He could have have been doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. I think you and I can both concede that he wouldn't be the first person or the last person to do so. Thankfully, though, for Naomi and Ruth, Boaz is unlike our Mr. So-and-so. Which takes us to our next point. The Redeemer, who would. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought the land from Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilean, and all that belonged to Malon. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Boaz, in classic Boaz fashion, responds without a hint of hesitation. He affirms publicly what he already said he would do in private. This guy's word is sure. He swore, remember in chapter 3, that if this guy wouldn't redeem, he would. No caveats, no ifs, no buts. His yes was yes. And to really enforce the genuine, reinforce the genuineness of this offer, he makes sure that all the witnesses are there, the elders, the townspeople, you see that I'm going to do this. This is what I have done. Now, why would Boaz so joyfully and so publicly proclaim what he's going to do? Again, we think about that worldly economic sense. I'm going to purchase property that I'm likely not going to get to keep. You guys see it, Right? Not, not heaps of financial nows from a worldly perspective. And I don't think he's doing this publicly so that people will like him, so that people will think he's pious. I think he views the world very differently to our Mr. So-and-so. He's using a different metric to evaluate his decisions. And I think that's one of the key distinguishing features between Mr. So-and-so, our unworthy man, and Boaz. Our worthy man is this phrase that I'm still working on refining. This God-centered economic outlook. Now, if you're here and you're a professing Christian, I want you to think about your faith. I hope we've been thinking about that all morning. But I want to think about how we make our decisions and how we would make them with a worldly perspective and how we would make them with a godly perspective. Think about the ones that we do already that are based on a godly perspective. We go to church and we joyfully give money to the support of the gospel. Unbelievers, they don't make Have you ever tried to explain to an unbeliever that you give money away? It doesn't make sense for them. We joyfully do it as Christians. What about going to church on Sundays? That's 50% of your weekend, right? Yeah. Even the way I phrase that, your weekend. We don't believe that. We joyfully fellowship with God's people. What about abstaining from what the world thinks is good? Holding views of morality that the world calls evil. These are things we do as Christians because we see the world differently. About publicly going through baptism to identify with a Jew who was crucified. 2,000 years ago. Again, that makes no sense to an unbeliever. But it's just crystal clear why we do that as Christians, right? And there's countless other examples. But as believers, these things make sense to us in light of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. It's a natural outworking to do these things. And so it is here with Boaz and our story. He dives in headfirst to care for Naomi and Ruth out of a love for God, a desire to be obedient to God's law. And it's not just the letter of the law, as we've talked about several times throughout this series. He's going over and above what is required of him. And he loves God's people. This doesn't mean that it's going to cost him financially any less than what it cost, would have cost Mr. So-and-so, but he's joyfully willing to do it. He's joyfully willing to push aside that worldly economic perspective and be obedient to God. Now let me ask you a bunch of questions, and I want you to think about how you would answer them. How do you choose where you live? How do you choose where you work? What makes you decide how you spend your time? What you watch on TV? How you spend your money? If you're single, how do you think about who you're going to marry? If you're married, how do you think about how many kids you might have? How are you going to decide what you'll do this evening? Or even who you're going to talk to after church? As you, as you think through those questions, are you thinking through that worldly lens? A lens of your own comforts, your own desires, your own kingdom? Or is God's character his sovereignty, his laws, his goodness as revealed in Christ at the top of your mind and coloring your thinking to the answer to those questions? Are you factoring in that as a believer, your life is not your own? That Christ joyfully, willfully went to the cross and gave up his life in your place? That he died for your sin? That he rose again? That he is seated at the right hand of the Father, is ruling and reigning and is coming back? Don't make the same mistakes that Mr. So-and-so did. Don't lose that perspective. Don't lose sight of eternity. Don't forget that all of creation is moving in one direction. The history has an endpoint. point. But all of life is moving towards God's glorious, eternal rule and reign. And our life here and now, our decisions here and now, should be made in light of that hope. In light of that endpoint, we should be thinking like Boaz, What will glorify God here? Not like Mr. So-and-So. What will glorify me? I think it's safe to assume that Boaz, being a good Jew and the way his life has been lived so far in the story, he knows the stories of the Pentateuch. He knows the first five books of the Bible that Israel deserved to be cut off multiple times. We even heard about that just last week in Leviticus. And yet, even despite their sin, God was merciful and gracious, and he preserved them. Boaz himself is one of these preserved, redeemed people. And now he has the opportunity to perpetuate the name of Elimelech by redeeming Naomi's property and marrying Ruth. Boaz has the opportunity to turn around and show the same grace that he has received from Yahweh. Show that same grace to others. He's an opportunity to do exactly what God did for him in in preventing his name and his people from being cut off by preventing Elimelech's name from being cut off. And that's what the people pray for in the next verse. Now, if you haven't read the book of Genesis in a while or committed all of its stories to memory, Rachel and Leah were the wives of Jacob, who was then renamed Israel. And between them, they literally built up the house of Israel. Their 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a significantly big prayer from the people of the town, praying for Boaz and for Ruth, which is even more stunning to think about, that Ruth is a foreigner, and they're saying, may, may this foreigner build up Israel. And we'll see the significance of this prayer a bit later on. But let's continue on to our third point, the God over our circumstances. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. Ruth and Boaz are now married. Nine months, give or take, has gone by, based on my best research. The Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son, a baby boy. Now, in my manuscript, I had this phrase "Is did you notice? But I didn't notice after like 10 readings. So, this is only the second time in the book of Ruth where God is actively working in the foreground of the story. Does anyone remember the first time where God did something? So chapter one, the Lord visits his people and provides food. And then chapter four, the Lord gave Ruth conception. Now, I'm not saying that God isn't at work anywhere else in the story. He absolutely is, and we've seen that. This is the first time the author puts him in the foreground. The Lord is doing this. And I think the author is making a point here. A part of that point is that every time conception is granted, it is by the Lord's enabling. That it is God's gift of life. But also, I think the author is making a broader point about God's sovereignty. Now, I want you to think about God's sovereignty as it's been presented in the book of Ruth so far. In chapter one, Naomi acknowledges, seems to acknowledge, God's sovereignty over all her sufferings that transpire. God sovereignly puts Ruth into a field where she's gleaning that happens to be, happens to be Boaz's field, a relative who's a worthy man, who's quite wealthy and generous. And now God is here sovereignly giving Ruth conception, which implies that he didn't give her conception before. She was married to her previous husband, Malon, for about 10 years and had no children, which is why there was no heir for Naomi. As we see God's sovereignty throughout this book, he's rightfully doing as he sees fit. But because we have the whole arc, we can see that it's ultimately for Ruth's and Naomi's good and for His glory. And it's the same for us. God is doing as He sees fit. God allows some people to be married. Others not. He allows some people to have really high-paying jobs. He allows others not to work really hard, just with enough to get by. Some of us, He grants us physical health. Others of us are battered with sickness. For reasons we can't often explain, God actively withholds things from us. Are we okay with that? Now, this doesn't mean that we can't ask for things for God. In fact, we should. Pray for a wife. Pray for a good job. If you've got sickness, pray for healing. But that doesn't mean we are to throw... God out of the equation if we don't get what we want. We ought to trust God's goodness even when He does not give us those things. Up until this point in the story, Naomi hasn't had the things that she's wanted. God has withheld them. She didn't have an heir. Ruth was without a child. And yet... It was a journey for Ruth, a journey for Naomi, but Ruth was trusting God that whole time. But more importantly than them just trusting God, God was still at work. He was still caring for them. He was still providing for them. He was, at the work, he was in the process of redeeming them. Even in the midst of those things being withheld. And in God's great unfolding story in his mercy and his kindness, they ultimately were granted an there. Ruth was granted a son. And look at the reaction of the women when that happens. They say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in all Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Do you follow the progression of these couple of verses? I don't know about you, but i got like quite confused in the, the thought progression here. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. They're talking about Boaz, right? But then they say, he shall be to your restorer of life in your old age. For Ruth has given birth to him. Boaz? No. Who are they talking about? They're talking about the baby. <laughs> Boaz is the one who redeemed her, obviously. We saw the transaction just happen at the town gate. But the women here are referring to the baby boy that Ruth has given birth to. And the townswomen and the author, I think, are being a bit prophetic here because David is going to be this baby's grandson. He's the one who unites the kingdom of Israel and redeems. I got parentheses lowercase R, his people, and the great grandson, great 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 grandson of David and of Ruth and Boaz, is Jesus, the capital R redeemer who redeems all of his people, the great restorer and nourisher of life, and we're getting a shadow of that in these couple of verses. Keep reading. Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Isn't this just a beautiful scene? Can you picture it? When Paige and I had our first, everyone knows us, when Reuben was born. It was during the middle of COVID, so we didn't get to have any family come around, and particularly Paige's family. I oh, don't know where she's even gone. Um, that way. Particularly Paige's family, they weren't able to come over. That just broke their heart. Lockdowns, not going to get in. But after Sophie was born in October last year, Paige's folks came over for a couple of weeks. And my mother-in-law just did not take her eyes off that baby the whole time. Like, just would, hours, just sit there, hold her, and just look at her like this. And just this warm smile on her face, like, just the most peace and joy, no offense, that I've seen her in her. <laughs> and I think that's like what it is for Naomi here. All the suffering she's been through, all the ups and downs, the death of her husband, the death of her sons, the affliction that she's experienced... And the story comes to a full arc, and she's holding this little baby boy, this air, this tangible expression of God's goodness and care for her. This is the same Naomi who came back from Moab, bitter and angry and broken. The one that said to all the townspeople, The Lord is against me. He's afflicted me. Don't even call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter. The one that said, I'm empty. And here she is, sitting, holding this little baby boy. Born from the daughter who is worth more than seven sons. Which is a huge compliment in the ancient Near East. Holding the air she thought she'd never have. Holding a tangible expression of God's kindness. Of God's mercy. Of God's provision. Holding this little... Nourisher of life. Through great pain, great affliction, great bitterness, emptiness, we can see God working all things out for her good and for his glory. We can see Naomi's suffering and pain is all working towards something. It's not pointless. It's ultimately good for her. If you're not a Christian, this idea that suffering can be good for you might seem totally foreign. But if you're a Christian, that idea shouldn't be. This is how God operates, is it not? Now we see in Scripture sometimes people suffer because of their sin. We see that with King David and um, the sin with Bathsheba and the suffering that took place after that. But often people suffer just because God has a greater purpose in it than people's immediate temporal health, comfort, and happiness. We can see this in the stories of Job. We see this in the story of Joseph. We see this with the blind man in Matthew 9, where they're saying, why was this guy born blind? And Jesus says, so that I might display my glory. We see that in Paul's thorn in his flesh. The story of Naomi's suffering and affliction... Should give us hope. Not hope that we get everything that we want necessarily in this life. But in a sense, it will work out in the end. We should have hope that God is indeed God over our circumstances. He is orchestrating our lives for our good. And we might not get everything we think we need on this side of eternity. But we do have all we need in Christ. We too, like Naomi, have a great redeemer. And it is God himself. We too have a great nourisher of life. The giver of life. Naomi goes from emptiness to fullness. An empty heart to a full heart. She goes from an empty stomach to a full stomach. From empty hands to full hands. And it's all by God's mercy and provision. And it's the same with us. I think that's why Paul can pray in Ephesians, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And the most amazing part about this story is that this isn't just about Ruth or Boaz or Naomi. God is working on something far bigger than any of them could have imagined. Because we get this great reveal in in chapter 4, verse 17 that they name him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of King David. Which takes us to our final point. The big reveal, the God who is God over history. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nation, Nation fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Jar and I were in Sydney a few weeks ago for, uh, what was it called, School of Theology, which was just like a, a three-day intensive through a seminary in the U.S. Uh, on, on pastoral ministry with lectures from um, Jim Renahan, if anyone's heard of him. And for some random reason, throughout the three days, he just kept coming up and saying, well, what's the point of the Book of Ruth? Which was, you know, going back to God's providence over all things, great for me, What is the point of the book of Ruth? How would you answer that question? Well, it's this. It's the genealogy at the end. Why? Because this is more than just a story about God's care and provision for a couple ladies. It definitely is a story of that. Don't get me wrong. God is definitely caring for his people through this and we should take heart and be encouraged and, and trust God for his care and provision for us. But this is, this is actually a story about God accomplishing his redemptive purposes in history through his people. All the events in this book up until this point, it, it was God's merciful provision, but it wasn't just God's merciful provision. It was his blessing on, on those who come to him in faith, but it was more than that. This is God preserving His people, providing for His corporate people. And the characters of this story could not have imagined at the time what God was unfolding through them. We saw back in chapter 1 that all this is transpiring in the time of the judges, a wicked, evil time where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And yet God was still at work. The anarchy and chaos of judges doesn't stop God from working out his plans. He was caring for Ruth and Naomi, but he was working to bring a king to Israel. And he was working towards his redemptive plan of bringing the king of all kings to the world. The great king that would redeem his people, the great one that would establish his kingdom, who would rule and reign forever. Working to bring the son that would be cut off at the cross, yet would be raised to life, The one whose name wouldn't just be preserved, but who would be given the name that is above all names. Is our time not too dissimilar to the time of the judges? Could you not easily characterize our time as one where everyone does what's right in their own eyes? It's easy to look at the state of our world, to look at our government, to look at our society, and get depressed, get hopeless. let me encourage you this morning that God is still at work. His promises stood firm through the time of the judges. And His promises stand firm today. Naomi and Ruth's circumstances weren't just accidents or coincidences. Our circumstances aren't accidents or coincidences. Naomi and Ruth's sufferings weren't meaningless. Our sufferings aren't meaningless. You know, we get a perspective at the end of the story that likely Ruth and Naomi never had. It was very, very unlikely that they saw David born or him become king. It's very unlikely that they saw what God was doing on a big scale. In one sense... They never got to see the final purposes of all their circumstances and sufferings, let alone the redemptive purposes of Christ coming in through the Davidic line. And yet they were faithful. They were obedient servants of the Lord. Their lives were ones lived in trust to our Lord. And you and I too may never see exactly what God is doing through us on this side of eternity. Dean Ulrich commenting on this passage puts it like this, God uses our faithfulness in daily responsibilities and ministry opportunities to accomplish more than we typically realize. We do not have to possess a full understanding of what God is doing through us, nor could we. Instead, we, like Ruth and Boaz, must have minds and bodies yielded to our redeeming God. As we trust Him to multiply the results of our service, God seemingly works behind the scenes one set of circumstances at a time to put everything under Jesus' feet. So contrary to popular popular belief, God being at work in our circumstances and in our lives doesn't involve massive splashes on history stage. It's not about crazy events, it's not about huge moments of breakthrough or victory or awakening. We don't try and manufacture those kinds of experiences when we come together on Sunday at church. We don't believe in revivalism, trying to artificially create revival. We praise God for the times he does do those splashes on history stage. We thank God for guys like George Whitfield and and Billy Graham. But that's not our expectation of everyday life, nor should it be. We trust that God is at work in the small things. God is at work often simply in ordinary people being faithful and obedient to Him where He has put them. God is at work in you as you seek to be faithful and obedient to Him in the actions of your everyday life. And do we not have countless opportunities for that? All those questions that I asked early on, who are you going to talk to after church? What are you going to do this evening? How will you spend your money this week? How will you be faithful and obedient to our King and our great Redeemer? It's interesting, I remember talking to Brayden a couple of years ago about some big life circumstances that I was weighing up. Do you remember this conversation? And I, I think it was about where I would where I'd work and you know, where I would live in light of that. And he said to me, don't be offended, but that's not really an important question. We, we like to think that those big things are important, and in a sense they are important, but where we really should be investing our time and energy is thinking about all the millions of little questions we ask each and every day, how will I respond to that person. How will I respond when my kid upsets me? How am I going to love and care for my wife and my family well today? These moment-by-moment chances, those are the ones that we need to be going, how do I faithfully, obediently be faithful to God in that? Yes, the, the big questions are big, but it's those small questions that we're making all the time where we have an opportunity to be faithful and obedient. The book of Ruth only gives us a snippet, a few months really, of these characters' lives. We get 10 years that's kind of fast-forwarded over at the beginning, but the bulk of the story is back when they get to Bethlehem. A couple months of harvest time, nine months of pregnancy. We get a snippet of ordinary people living ordinary lives in faithful obedience to God. And we see that God is sovereign over all of it. We can see that God is using it to fulfill his purposes. To go back to our opening question, how do you want your life to be remembered? What do you want your legacy to be? How do you ensure that it's remembered? Well, the question is in short, by faithfully, obediently living a life in response to God's goodness shown to you in Christ and trusting that He sees that, that He remembers that. If you've recognized your need for a redeemer, as we saw Ruth did in chapter 3, if you've acknowledged your sin and you've turned to Christ in repentance and faith, you can have confidence that your name will not be cut off like that of Mr. So-and-so. If we humbly seek our great redeemer, we can have confidence that our name will be written in the book of life, that it will never be blotted out. That Christ will remember you on the last day. As we trust that He remembers us, we ought to remember Him in our everyday living today. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that all of our circumstances the highs and lows of life, the sufferings, the joys, that you are at work in it all. God, would you help us trust you in that? God, would you help us to look to your grace, look to your mercy, look to the cross, the way that you have cared for us, redeemed us, given us life, And Lord, would you help us by your Spirit live lives that are a response to that? God, we thank you that it is only by your mercy and your grace that our names will be remembered in the book of life. There is nothing that we can do to write that name down ourselves, but it is you. But Lord, would you give us lives that are a joyful reflection of that mercy and kindness you have shown to us. By your spirit, would you bring conviction? Would you bring clarity? Would you bring wisdom in all of those decisions that we make? We ask all this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.